feel like last week and this week may be two of the most important sermons I've had the chance to preach myself. Um, and um, I think we may have kind of snuck up on Satan last week, but he knows we're doing this this week. He is, I'm not into the kind of big hocus pocus stuff. I believe what the scriptures say, but I'm not into, I don't really focus on that a whole lot, but man, I had a worse night's sleep than I've had in a long time. And I'm just convinced that he's not uh, happy with where we're going this morning, um, especially what we are connecting from last week. So I want to obey that in prayer. I want to obey us in prayer. Uh, I want to pray that we'll be attentive and um, alert. I want to pray for another church in our community, a church that we planted in commerce. And I want to pray for one of our members that's, that's sick right now. So let's pray. God, first, we want to lift up another church in our community and just a church that's near and dear to our hearts as former members of this church deployed to start a church in commerce. We are so thankful for the years of root, roots and growth that, that you have grown there. We're thankful for the leadership and for the families that have connected to this church in commerce and thankful for a, a consistent aroma of life in commerce because you have planted this church there. We're thankful that students, as they come and go from all over the world, have a chance to gather and hear uh, from you and hear um, to be equipped to worship, to under, understand and hear what the gospel is, and to walk with your people. Lord, we are thankful for uh, C3 in, in commerce and thankful for the shared ministry, thankful for the... the uh, DNA that we share. And to Lord, as we pray for C3 and commerce, I think it's appropriate that we begin to pray as a church and have been for some time, but appropriate that we begin to pray on Sunday mornings for what you have yet to do in terms of planting. As we look around and we see a, a worship center that's pretty full this morning and probably children's spaces that are pretty full, just the thought if we're pregnant and wondering if we're pregnant with the next plant that where that would be, who would lead, who would go, what you have in store. It's exciting to think about, and we put that in front of you and um, anticipate it and look forward to it. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Last week was heavy on exposition. What we did last week, we sort of... Um, looked at a big picture view of the, really the Bible, the story, the redemption story, trying to understand if there's sort of the big theme that might emerge that could help us understand where we are and what we're enjoying in the gospel. And I think last week, something really beautiful came into focus for us. I'm hoping that some of you have connected to that, most of you connected to that. If you're here this morning and didn't hear last week's message, this week's message is leaning heavily upon that, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that. What we looked at last week was a thousand-year period that began with Israel's request for a king, and then Samuel's warnings of what they were going to get if they asked for that. We also considered last week that after they asked for a king, that in the north in Israel, they spent 350 years of proof that the king project wasn't going to go well. And then in the south in Judah, they spent 450 years proving that not only was Samuel right, he was right and then some. His predictions about how bad the monarchy would be didn't even come close to how bad it actually was. They built high places that the Canaanites built to worship foreign gods and even sacrificed children in these high places. One of their kings, the first king of the north, made golden calves, two of them, and told the people to worship them, for it's these golden calves that led you out of Egypt. The Gaul. They erected Asherah poles, and they worshiped the fertility god, Asherah. And they had male prostitutes. 
to go along with that. The King Project went terribly, terribly bad. We developed this reality in the first part of the message last week that sort of summarized in the end of Second Chronicles. I want you to just listen. There are places I'm going to have you go this morning, but just listen. The last three kings in the south. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and 10 days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. And this phrase just, man, grab this, until there was no remedy. Until there was no remedy. The next thing God did in the north and in the south, and the north goes into exile into Assyria. The south, a few hundred years later or so, goes into exile into Babylon. Man, this nation that's born in the fiery furnace of affliction in Egypt, this nation that saw God deliver this people out of Egypt through the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues, had a front row seat to the Red Sea parting, heard Sinai quake, This nation, the one that God promised Abraham, is a stinking mess. And the sad part is they were led there. They were led there by one disappointing king after another. Even if a king managed to be worth something, he ended up dying. And then you'd get his outlaw son or his outlaw grandson. What we developed in the first part of the message last week is that there were 722 years of silence in the north. No king, Syria, 587 years of silence in the south, Babylon, and then back home, they rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. But under governors, 722 years of silence in the north, 587 years of silence in the south, a long, dark, pregnant period that the nation had to think on what they asked for first and why they asked for it, and then secondly, to really consider what they got. Maybe in that lack that developed over that pregnant darkness, they would find hope. The second part of the sermon last week went to some of those that did find hope. It fast-forwarded all the way through the silence right up to the birth of Christ. We strolled to the temple together last week and met an old man named Simeon, an old man named Simeon that went to the temple every single day with one purpose, to find the Christ child. What was said of Simeon is that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. He felt the darkness, the pregnant darkness. He lifted the Christ child saying, here he is. Now you can take me home. We also met last week there at the temple on the same day, an old lady named Anna that was waiting for the redemption of Israel. Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna's waiting for the redemption of Israel. Please come redeem, redeem us from this pregnant darkness. Man, we felt the sting of disappointment of one king after another, and then exile, and then silence. And then third, we met last week, Joseph of Arimathea. Recognize the name Christ's tomb was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea. It said of Joseph of Arimathea that he was looking for the kingdom of God. I don't know about the rest of Israel, but at least three of the Israelites got the point from that pregnant 
silence in that pregnant darkness. Simeon waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. Anna waiting for the redemption of Israel. Joseph of Arimathea looking for the kingdom of God. Man, Simeon and Anna and Joseph are representatives of faithful people, likely others who pined for a true and righteous king. And Jesus was and is that long-awaited king. That's what we enjoyed last week. The answer, he is in a place and a situation where there is no remedy. You see that? Man, the answer where there was no remedy. Man, what a treasured truth we engaged last week. The gospel was preached last week. I don't know if you realize that. For those of you that were here, you heard the gospel last week. I'm going to share a series of passages with you. I'm going to be moving very quickly. I've got my pages marked. I have lots of scripture to go to briefly today in different places. So if you'd like to move quickly, if you're a sword driller, you know, you like to, then you can do that. There may be some places I actually do have you camp out, but I encourage you this morning just to listen, especially, I don't say just listen, especially listen to these passages and maybe see the gospel in a whole new light. I just said to you, the gospel was preached last week. Listen to this passage from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, this is Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, that is means good news, of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Fifty-four times in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is mentioned. And this is what Jesus is preaching. This is the good news of a kingdom. In so many ways, what he's saying here, here's the good news. I'm here. A thousand years ago, you asked for a king you could see and touch and feel, one that would get out in front of you and fight your battles for you. I'm here. Man, that's the good news that saturates Matthew is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Next passage is in Acts chapter 8. Listen to this. This is after Pentecost, after the church has been born. Let's see what these new fresh, or these fresh converts and fresh evangelists and fresh apostles are teaching and preaching and saying and doing. Listen to this passage in Acts chapter 8. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news, there it is again, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It struck me and blew my mind that Philip is an evangelist and he's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's not telling a story about all the drugs that he used to do. And how Jesus liberated him from that. And let me tell you right now, I don't want to dismiss that. That's not nothing. But evangelism apparently, according to our Bibles, is preaching the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Not just sharing your story about how God liberated you from drugs and porn and women and everything else that you can possibly think of. Evangelism is apparently so, so, so much more than that. Philip, the evangelist, is preaching good news of a kingdom that has come. Man, I like the sound of that. Next passage is in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. Now, Jason was Paul's host at this time. They drag them outside, and they're shouting. Listen to what they're shouting. These men have turned the world upside down, 
These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They're turning the world upside down, not with personal testimony. Again, that's not nothing. That's great. They're turning the world upside down with a message of a new king, a king that has come, the true and perfect and righteous king. And their crime in this case is preaching King Jesus. Hmm. Let's see what else develops in this book of Acts, the story of the church. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Paul enters the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is Paul in Ephesus in the synagogue. At the end of, or later on in this, in this book, in this particular section here that's dealing with Paul in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, at the end of the page on my side, on the, on the next bottom of the next page, and now behold, I know that none among you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I want you to pay attention that what's being said here is I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom and you're not going to see my face again. It's like bookends with this conversation, this ministry to the church in Ephesus began with teachings about the kingdom in the synagogue and it ended with farewell. Remember, I taught you about the kingdom. And oh, by the way, that was the full whole council. You see that? Don't forget, I taught you the full council of the kingdom of God, man. So we got Jesus preaching it. We got Philip preaching it. We got Jason preaching it, the criminal. We got Paul preaching it. Let's see what happened when Paul goes to Rome. Acts chapter 28, listen to this. Beginning in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul's good news in Rome is the hope of Israel, the king that's come, the true and righteous king. The next page, the book of Acts, ends with these words. Beginning in verse 28, let's start there. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there, Paul, for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is apparently such an important teaching the book of Acts ends with it. It's filled with it, saturated with kingdom events. That's just a few of the highlights. The gospel, when it's preached, this message of a kingdom and the new king, the new and true and righteous king that's come is the message that sends them to jail. Man. I want to ask you this question. Just think about this for a minute. Have you ever talked with another person about the gospel? Parents, I hope you've talked with your children about it. Some of you may have shared with workmates or friends or family members over the years. I just want to ask you this question. Just think about it for a minute. As you're sharing Christ with another person, have you ever discussed his being the true and perfect and righteous king that's the long-awaited king that Israel pined for, that the world needs? I'm looking at this thing that saturates Matthew, at least, saturates the book of Acts, and I'm seeing people use the language of it being good news and gospel, and I'm realizing there's been very few messages from this pulpit that have been about the kingdom of heaven. Now, some have, but given what it is, I'm an evangelist this morning. Look at that. Man, who knew? The gospel as we know it 
seems, now I want to say seems because I don't know where each of you come from. The gospel may be as I have known it. Seems deficient on kingdom concepts. Maybe it's because it's so foreign and hard to relate to. Maybe it's hard to illustrate something that you've never seen. We talked about that last week. Anybody been part of a monarchy? Anybody ever been a citizen of a real physical kingdom? Man, it's a foreign thing for us here in the States. But if we climb into this story and we pan out enough to see that Israel was desperately needing a good and righteous king, we can climb into their story and then we can see that his reign and rule and kingdom must become part of our conversation. Like saturating our conversation as it saturates the word. It's got to become what we're teaching our kids as good news about King Jesus. I wondered if this good news for a time here, as I was studying this and digging into this, I wondered if this good news of Jesus as the king, the final king that Anna waited for, that Simeon waited for, that Joseph looked for, I wondered if it might just be Jewish good news. I mean, that's an honest question as we're thinking about this story. A large part of this Bible is about the the nation of Israel. So I just kind of asked the question. Maybe this was meant to be and intended to be a way to package what Christ has done for the Jews. I wondered, is that possible? Or was this concept of kingdom meant to travel to the Gentiles as well? Well, I'll tell you this. I'm not going to read a lot of passages here. But I found the epistles, these letters written to the churches all over the Roman Empire are saturated as well with kingdom concepts and kingdom appeals and kingdom truths. We're going to consider some of them this morning. Some of them might be as simple as the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That written to the church in Rome. The church in Rome was made up of Jew and Gentile. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's a church thing. Man, I found a passage that was written to the Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians especially is is saturated with kingdom concepts. And here I found a passage that if I haven't preached it before and like an evangelistic sort of passage, then man, I'm crazy. I know I have, in fact. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Man, that's gospel 101 right there. As all have died in Adam because all sinned and Adam sinned, we are made righteous in Christ. That's gospel 101. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Listen to what is said in the next sentence. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. (sighs) Man, that's full counsel sort of stuff right there. You mean Jesus died for our sins? Yes, part A. Part B, you mean he's king? Yes, part B, that's the full counsel right there. Written to the church in Corinth. So apparently it's not just the Jewish thing. I found this passage, this written by James. Someone could argue that this was a Jewish thing since we believe that James was probably a bishop in Jerusalem, probably the brother of Jesus, if that's the same James. But there's good sense, good thought that this letter was circulated throughout the Roman Empire. And listen to this, James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. I just did the same thing he did. Listen to this. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? What struck me from this passage right here is the carrot that James is holding out there is not so that you can go to heaven. The carrot of what's been promised to you is that you are to inherit the kingdom. 
man, the carrot is this thing that I have so neglected from this pulpit over 10 years. I know I've preached on it. I remember a passage in James where I preached on it, or a passage in John where I preached on it. And Hebrews has certainly leaned in that direction. But my goodness, is this such an essential part of the gospel? And yet I have shared so little of it. What an exciting thing to gather this morning. Man, the kingdom is the carrot. Huh. Who knew? Listen to Revelation. Verse 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Part A of the gospel, right? We love that. Freed us from our sins by his blood. Mm. Lots of songs, lots of sermons, lots of great things that we've enjoyed together as a church. Rightfully so. And here's the second part of that. And he's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Wow. The full council apparently has a lot to do with the kingdom and this long-awaited king that's come. That passage right there has everything to do with identity. We are a kingdom because of what he's done. Well, what I want to do this morning for the rest of our time here is I want us to just consider a few things. What are we going to do with this? If Jesus was in fact and is in fact the long-awaited king, if he reigns and rules, if this is a message that's been preached as the good news, then what are we to do with this if we are to be part of his kingdom? Two things. Here's the first thing. This should help us redefine salvation. This is so basic, but it just blows my mind when I think about it. This should help us redefine salvation. The gospel, the good news, is not all about you going to heaven. I'm going to say that again. The gospel is not all about you going to heaven. Listen to these passages from Matthew. Listen to how they read. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't say repent so that you can go to heaven. Matthew 4, 17. From the time Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't say repent so that you can go to heaven. Matthew 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It doesn't say he went all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming how they could get to heaven and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is gospel redefining. It is salvation redefining. Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for those are the ones who are going to go to heaven. You know, it doesn't say that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for those are the guys that are going to go to heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say you will never go to heaven. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It doesn't say seek first a trip to heaven and these things will be added to you. Man, I know that's exhaustive, but it's exhaustive for a point because we need to connect to the reality that this teaching here in our Bibles, Matthew, for example, is not all about you getting to heaven. It's about a kingdom that's come. To think for a moment, very familiar passage to you, be when Jesus teaches them to pray. This is a passage you can turn to. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. 
As you're turning there, I'm going to remind you, just so you're connected with this. So that you may enter the kingdom of heaven is not synonymous with, does not equal, so that you may go to heaven when you die. Listen to this in Matthew 6. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want you to see the direction of the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. You're praying, if you're going to pray well, as Jesus is teaching here, you're praying the kingdom in our direction, not praying that you're going to go to heaven to be with Jesus. And this is salvation redefining. We're praying his kingdom down, not asking him to beam us up. Man. The gospel and the good news is a kingdom come, not a saint departed. Salvation is defined by the full counsel, and the whole Bible is not mostly about going to heaven when you die. It's about God the Son becoming king on earth. I'm going to say that again because you got to get that. Our Bibles, the whole counsel, the full counsel. Now, you can grab a little passage out of context, and you can make it scratch your personal itch knocking on the door of your little wee little hearts, which is so violently taken out of context. Like Jesus, you ever seen the picture of Jesus standing outside knocking on the door of your heart like he's a little tiny wee Jesus? And and please let me in. That's not the message of our Bibles. The message of our Bibles is about God the Son becoming king on earth. I read a good book this summer guy named N.T. Wright wrote a book, When God Became King. And it's a book really sort of encouraging that we read the gospel, read the, the gospels the way they should be read. Instead of just being illustrations for when we're preaching from Paul. But let them be authoritative as kingdom sort of messages. And he said this, it was interesting. I thought it was a great illustration. Just illustrating how messed up we can be about this. He says, it's as though you were to get a letter from the president of the United States inviting himself to stay at your home. But in your excitement, you misread it and assume that he was inviting you to stay at the White House. Think about that for a minute. You get a letter from the president saying, I'm coming to stay at your place. And you get so excited that you misread it and you think the good news is that you're going to get to go stay at the White House. Man, I wonder if the ancient church didn't have a better grasp on this than we do. This summer, as part of our sabbatical, my family and I made the trip to Europe. We've been planning for this for 10 10 years now. We had a uh, big trip planned, and a good portion of that was spent in Rome. And we got to see so much of the early church and Florence was another place. So much of the church was so central in these cathedrals and these basilicas and these just ornate structures and all these things that they, they, they built, their art, their statues, frescoes everywhere, and this architecture that was just magnificent. I used to look at that kind of stuff and think about how ridiculous that was, that they spent all that effort just knowing that all that's going to be destroyed and, you know, Jesus is going to come back, all that's going to be destroyed, we're going to get a new heavens and new earth. But see, what these guys thought and what I realized in studying the early church and the way they thought, what they thought is that when he said that, the, that he has been become king and that he is seated and reigning and ruling, that they were building a basilica or a cathedral, that he's going to come back and walk the halls. They're thinking when he says, I'm king, okay, then this is a kingdom. 
They even wore priestly or kingly garb, ruling garb, the colors and the linens and the big hats. And I mean, a lot of them still do. That's ruling garb because they're thinking he became king when he rose and was seated at the right hand, when he ascended and was seated at the right hand. Man, you see their structures and you realize that they weren't just being silly. They were thinking that they were building this structure for the king to walk in. They were thinking that they're painting a painting, Michelangelo or Da Vinci, or painting a painting that Jesus is going to stand in front of, King Jesus. That's why they're so fine. Michelangelo is making a, a sculpture that he's thinking that King Jesus is going to stand and walk around. And that's why it's so fine. I wonder if the ancient church and the early church may have gotten this more right, King Jesus and kingdom being the good news, though still wrong. Here, crusades and craziness like that. They may have gotten it more right than we have. Man, they built like the kingdom is coming down here. They painted like the king is coming here. They sculpted like the king is coming here. They at least had some concept of the kingdom. Man. Passage that struck me as I was studying this and thinking about this and wanting to really connect to this picture is yet another passage on the kingdom in a letter to a Gentile church. Yet again, it's apparently not just Jewish. This is written to the Colossians. Listen to this passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. There it is again. Part B was in first right here, and then there's part A. Redemption of sins right there at the end. That's the full counsel. That's the full good news right there. That we've been transferred from this present evil dark age into the age to come. From this present darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son. And this is presented as past tense. He has delivered us. We are kingdom citizens right now. The moment, the moment that you prayed, Lord, I want by faith. I want to trust Christ as my Savior and Lord. I want to put my, my sins on his cross. That's the moment you were transferred to the age to come. That's the moment that you were transferred into his kingdom and you became a kingdom citizen at that moment. That's good news. Man, I don't want to diminish heaven one bit, but I'm going to tell you right now, that is salvation to be transferred from this domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's salvation. That's gospel. That's good news. Man, it redefines salvation. The second thing has three parts. That was the first thing. Second thing has three parts. Doesn't mean it's longer. It might even be shorter. It might be longer, I don't know. Second part, second thing, what do we do with this of Christ being the long-awaited king and that we're part of a kingdom? The second thing is that seeing this will help you see yourself as part of a kingdom. Now, I've already kind of bumped into that, but let me develop that a little bit. Seeing this will help you see yourself as part of a kingdom. And here's the first little sub-point of that. Church will become an identity rather than an activity. Years ago, man, I don't know when it was. It may have been year one. We started using the language. I started using the language, and people kind of, it just kind of caught. And we're not militant about it. But that we don't go to church. I mean, I can't remember. How, it, hundreds of sermons, maybe. <laughs> We don't go to church. We are the church. When you start using language like going to church, then church becomes an activity on your schedule. 
And it becomes also not only confined to time, it becomes confined geographically. If you got to go to something, then that means that it's where you're not. So we're going to go to church. It's going to happen at an appointed time, and it's in a geographic spot here on 2401 Jack Finney, and then we go home, and we did church. And I know a lot, little bit of, of its semantics, but I think it's bigger than, than we may realize. If you begin to think, wait a second, church is an identity. It's not an activity. I am a kingdom citizen. This is not just another thing on my schedule book. And I'm going to tell you what, this concept will travel too. Those of you that have kids that are moving up into youth age, you can give your kids a list of don't do's. You young people, you can give them a list of don't do's and see how that works out. Or you can begin to build in them an identity. An identity, that, that's not who you are. You can tell them, hey, we don't want to be promiscuous. You want to participate in, in any th- sort of sexual act- activity outside of marriage because that's not God-honoring. Okay, that sounds like kind of a don't-do list, but you really want to round it out? You want to say, you know why you want to do that? Because that's not who you are. Identity, kingdom, citizen. When I was a boy, my dad, man, I cannot remember how many times he said this to me. He'd tell me something like if I wanted to quit or I was complaining about something, he said, but but you need to be quiet. That's not the way McGraws operate. You're McGraw. If I was going to fuss about something, McGraws don't fuss about stuff like that. He's building this thing into me that really, I think now, hopefully, is being replaced by, we don't fuss about stuff like that because we are his, because we belong to another, because that's my identity. I like being a McGraw, but I love being his. Think about that, building that into your family and building that into your children. Conversations that go something like this, remember your baptism. Remember who you were baptized into. You were baptized into a kingdom. You were baptized into a people. That's not who you are. That's not in keeping with who you are. That has a whole lot more potency than a list of don't do's, right? Anybody else have a list of don't do's growing up? Hey, we had what we had. Man, you want to give something fine to somebody, build identity into them. That's why this is good news for me, boy, because I need some identity. I need it. And we got it amply right here. The second little subset under this seeing yourself as part of a kingdom will be that you will live in a way that's fitting for a king. It struck me the number of passages that were vice lists. Vice lists are little passages in our Bible that have these lists of these vulgar things or crazy things, you know, orgies and crazy stuff like that, but not all vulgar and crazy stuff, that these things aren't in keeping with being in his kingdom. Almost every single one of them connect to that's not what you do as a kingdom citizen. I'm just going to read a couple of them just to give you a sampling. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of God sandwich right there. You won't get this if you do this. And by the way, you won't do that. You won't get this. Kingdom is connected to how you live and move. As a kingdom citizen, there are ways that kingdom citizens move. It doesn't earn your place in the kingdom. It just marks you as a kingdom citizen. Kingdom citizens don't do these things. Man, Paul's reminding the Corinthian church, and such were some of you before you became kingdom citizens, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Man, that's full counsel right there, isn't it? A and B, boom, boom, right there. He paid for your sins, and he made you part of a kingdom. That will travel right there. That is some good, good stuff right here. Here's another one, Galatians. 
Galatians 5. This will be the, the last one I read of this. You hope, I think you'll, although there are more, golly, there are more. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Listen to this. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Man, there it is again. There's another one in Ephesians 5, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. Man, the picture here is that being a kingdom citizen means that you're living in a way that's fitting for the king. Now turn to Hebrews 12. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. Hebrews 12. I sent out an email last Monday. It may have even been Sunday. I was so excited about this. It just happened to be my, my daily reading with the, um, I'm not doing the McShane reading this year. I'm doing a thematic reading. It takes you to different places in the Bible just to do something a little different. And I read these two passages like, oh, yeah. Therefore, let us be grateful. This verse 28 of, of chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Okay, you hear it past tense. We've received and are receiving a kingdom. This, this, and, that, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, now here's what's around that passage. Here's what's sandwiched around that. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire, by the way, not a chump. And what's around this passage starts back in verse 7. It's just where I kind of started looking. It is for discipline that you have to endure. You want to participate in some seriously fine worship? Then endure discipline. When people you love come up to you and say, bro, you cannot continue moving this way. You want to worship? Endure it. That's just first little sample. Endure it. Verse 7. Verse 14. Look down. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Endure discipline. Strive for peace. This is good worship in the kingdom. Strive for peace with everyone and also strive for holiness without, with, without which no one will see the Lord. Man, look down in the next, next verse, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The verb there is to see to it. In other words, tend to it. You want to be about the act of worship? Endure discipline. Strive for peace, strive for holiness, and tend to those who are bitter. Help them with that bitterness, otherwise it's going to defile many. That's good worship in the kingdom. That's the way the kingdom is supposed to operate. Look at the next verse. No one should be sexually immoral, unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So also be sexually immoral pure. That's what kingdom citizens do. And then fast forwarding to the other side of this verse, verse 28 and 29, look at 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hostility to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. These are real practical things kingdom citizens can do. Man, I want you to know something. I personally have like danced around work stuff because I don't ever want to imply that your salvation has been or will ever be by works or effort. He got out in front of the battle that you couldn't fight and he fought it for you. Battle over, period. He won your salvation. He won your adoption. He won your green card or whatever it is, your citizenship. 
And now you're a citizen of the kingdom. And this is how kingdom citizens move. There was a heresy in the early church that's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism so has, it's crazy how 2,000 years later, how it so still pervades the faith. Gnostics believed that the physical was separated from the spiritual so that you could do whatever you wanted to do with your bodies. As long as you love Jesus, you could participate in orgies. That's the kind of stuff they did. And they said, boy, oh, we love Jesus. That is a false teaching. Maybe they were too scared of saying anything about effort or works or anything like that or anything that you strive to do for fear of diminishing the gospel. The gospel is not being diminished today when I am telling you that kingdom citizens live in a way that just go down the list here. Endure discipline, strive for peace, strive for holiness, tend to the bitter, aren't sexually immoral or aren't continuing in that. They're loving their brothers. They're not neglecting strangers. They're remembering those in prison. They're honoring marriage. They're they're content with what they have and they don't love money. That's what kingdom citizens do in this kingdom. Otherwise, you'd be a Gnostic. Saying, I love Jesus, but none of that stuff really matters. He'll pay for my sins because it's his job. Man, we shouldn't shy away from striving in things like this because we're living in a way that's fitting for a king. One of the things I enjoyed seeing in Rome and Florence especially was the quality of the work. Obviously, the quality is renowned, paintings and sculptures and architecture. But man, I thought, I want to build, I want to paint, I want to sculpt, I want to be a husband, I want to be a dad, like a a pastor, prepare sermons, like a kingdom citizen, like I'm presenting them for the king. I want to build an ornate family. Ornate building is not that impressive to me. Like I said, they may have had some things right, but they still had some things wrong. Instead of ornate buildings and paintings, we could build ornate families. We could have Michelangelo shepherds, shepherds of families that are like, man, I'm going to give my very best because this is for the king. Shepherds of small groups, this, this small group is going to get my very best, not my leftovers, because this is for the king. Excellence. Da Vinci teachers that are pouring themselves into being equipped to expose and apply and walk in it themselves. Worship leaders that are like, man, nothing but my very best. I will not go through the motions with the king. Man, this travels. The last thing, a little sub-point there for this application of the seeing yourself as part of a kingdom, living in a way that's fitting for the king, is just a brief note about victorious living. I mentioned it last week that what they asked for in a king was a king that would go out in front of them, fight their battles for them. We got that. You know that. So we can live and victoriously enjoying that our king has fought the battle for us. Now, the problem is we still have high places and Asherah poles that need to be destroyed. Spend some time in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, and look at maybe a few of the good kings, guys like Josiah or Hezekiah. Look at what they did. I love the imagery. They'd take the Asherah poles and they would grind them up and they would pour them out in the Kidron Valley. Pour them out. I wish I could have seen that. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there's some high places in my life that I want God to destroy. I want King Jesus to grind them up in his time and pour them out in the Kidron Valley so we can be done with it. Man, victorious living says he's able. It says, I'm not going to quit trying. 
And I'm not going to quit pursuing excellence. And I'm not going to quit striving for holiness and striving for purity because that's what kingdom citizens do. And as I'm pursuing that, in his time, he grinds it up. One Asherah pole after another. One high place after another. He levels in his time and for his own glory. Man, kingdom citizens are living victoriously, saying, hey, our God reigns. Right? Our God reigns. He's reigned in y'all, man. I, I could go around the room and think just faces. I'm seeing faces of ways that he's reigned in your lives. And he has yet to reign. Man, let's enjoy that as kingdom citizens. The last thing before we have the supper, I thought I would share with you. One of the things that I enjoyed in these last two sermons and in sort of my sabbatical study and in having the, the chance to go overseas and see the early church where they, at least in Rome, and reading this book all at the same time, these, these details just came into alignment. These dots were connected that I couldn't have orchestrated that I'm thankful that the Lord sort of connected What I really enjoyed about this summer, what I really enjoyed about these last two sermons is seeing that we are in cahoots with 2,000 years of Christ-adoring saints. We are family with 2,000 years of Christ-adoring saints. We were in Rome. We had the chance to go to the catacombs where they buried a lot of their family members They worshiped in the catacombs as well in the second century A.D. in Rome. It's these things that are underground, these little tunnels. We had the chance to go through these tunnels and see them little scrawled, little signs that they scrawled on the rock. Ichthus. I mean, the original ichthus, not stuck on a car. I'm talking the original. Ichthus. The original Cairo, the Greek Letters, first, first letters of Christ's name, Christus. Cairo, right there in the wall. And seeing frescoes of early believers where they're painting Noah. They're painting what's in our Bibles that we have a little fun thing with in the kids in summer. They're painting it. They're painting Jesus calm in the, the stormy seas. The frescoes almost 2,000 years old. We walked through churches that were underground because they'd been covered by one pile of rubble after another, and they unearthed these churches where you see these frescoes and you see these guys, man, the excellence and what they built and everything that they've done, and they did the best that they could do with what they'd been given. And I saw myself in league with those guys for the first time. I think probably before this trip this summer, before reading and studying some this summer, I probably would have viewed myself more as reformed than Christian. Some of you, most of you probably know what that means. Some of you don't, and I'll explain that personally, I guess. I'm not going to spend the time right now. I think probably before seeing this early church and seeing their excellence and seeing the things that they pursued and their paintings and their sculptures and their Kairos and their Ichthus and their, their version of early faith, I would have kind of called all that kind of a wash. I would have called, kind of grouped them in with indulgences and the kind of things that the church was, the Catholic church was experiencing and practicing when Martin Luther protested and the Reformation began and we became Protestant. I would see myself probably before this as more Protestant than Christian. And while I do enjoy what Martin Luther did, I see it now in the big picture. One point, we were walking through Rome on our second day, and our guide walked past this little building. This little building is called the Scala Sancta. The only purpose for this building is to house a set of stairs. This set of stairs, they say, was imported into Rome from Jerusalem in 3rd century or 4th century or something like that. Marble steps. Now, whether or not that happened, nobody knows. There were lots of things. They, they said they had you know, pieces of the cross or they had 
John the Baptist's head or something. I mean, all kind of crazy stuff, all kind of relics that we don't know whether they had or not. That's not the point. But this building we walk by, our guide just kind of in passing says, oh, it's the scale of sanctus. Since we're walking by it, we should go in it. And we walk inside and I realize we're standing at the bottom of a set of stairs where supposedly the birthplace of the Reformation took place. See, Martin Luther made a pilgrimage to Rome in 1510 and 1511, right around in there. We don't know exactly when. Martin Luther made a pilgrimage to Rome. He's Catholic at this point, all Catholic. He wants to go to Rome to experience the relics and to experience the, the religious things, and this was the, really the high point, the scala sancta. The only way you can go up this set of stairs is on your knees. And you can still do it today. Daniel and I did it. Daniel said, hey, Dad, I want to do this. And I was I, like, I had this inner turmoil wrestling. Like, is this wicked for me to do this? Because I know I'm not earning any righteousness. You know, I had this little, little inner war that took place over the course of about eight seconds. And I was like, yeah, I can do this, man. Let's do it. So we embarked up these, you know, ventured off up these steps. I cheated the first couple of steps. And the priest told me when I got back down, he said, next time you will come back, you know a cheetah. <laughs> He said, I saw you cheetah. You coming back and know a cheetah next time. I pressed exactly what he did. He's smiling. It was funny. But Daniel and I, man, we made it up that thing. And these, there were people praying all over these steps. And they might take 10 minutes, an hour, I don't know, on a step. I guess it depends on how long their prayer was. It took us about three minutes to get to the top. I mean, we weren't being like ugly, like sacrilegious or anything. It was just, it wasn't, it wasn't about a, a, a righteousness earning thing for us. Well, we got to the top, and man, it hit me. This is where Martin Luther said, we believe he said this at the top of the same steps that he crawled up. He got to the top and said, who knows whether it is so? And some people think that's where the birthplace of the Reformation took place, where he expected maybe to feel different at the top of the steps than he did at the bottom, but he didn't feel any different. He said, man, something's got to happen outside this. Because I crawl on my knees, I wear a funny hat, I do whatever, I stand on one leg. None of it works. I need a right, an alien righteousness. I need something from outside, outside of me by faith. And this is birth, birthplace of Reformation. I love that story. I shared that story in a sermon eight or nine years ago. And I had a picture up on the screen in that old building of the steps that we climbed up. But here's what hit me. When we were walking by that building, I asked her, I said, how long has that building been here? She said, oh, that building's modern. The building was built in 1589. Oh, that's, that's modern. <laughs> it just put it all in perspective, like all in a matter of a couple minutes, I'm kind of piecing this together. I'm like, well, wait a second. The Protestant Reformation is modern. I put Martin Luther back there with all those other guys, with Athanasius and all those guys are like 300 years after Jesus, 400 years after Jesus. Man, that's the Protestant movement that I'm thankful for. This Reformation is a modern thing. It was uber necessary, but it's not the whole story. There's 1,500 years worth of Christianity in front of that. And man, we stand on the shoulders of people that were painting frescoes in a cave underground. That's my brother and my father up there doing that. That's your brother and your father, kingdom citizens. Man, that's who we're in cahoots with? Man, I can enjoy that. Those are the guys that guarded the message. Those are the guys that put together the scriptures. Those are the guys that eventually developed the canon. Yeah, we're standing on some pretty broad shoulders, 2,000 years worth of Christianity. It's given me a new set of eyes in Greenville. I'm looking at a Methodist church or a Catholic church or any triune God-enjoying church, and I'm saying, you're my brother and you're my sister. Do I agree with everything? Nope. But if you're agreeing that Jesus is God the Son, risen, seated, reigning, and ruling, and that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, went to the cross, bore our sins. Bro, we're in cahoots with the guys that painted the frescoes. Man, that's good stuff right there. That's identity, right? That's identity. That's my people. The scrawled ichthus in that wall. I bet that was hard. That wall was hard. That's my people. I love that. Mm. Frail, feeble, fouled up folks just like me. 
entrusted with a rich message of good news. Right? That's our people. Kingdom people. Mm. We're going to have our supper now. And I'm going to read a passage from Matthew 26. Very appropriate passage. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks to he gave it to them, saying, drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What he's talking about there is the end of the age when the bride and the groom come together and the kingdom is turned over to the Father, the kingdom won by the Son as he's placing all things in subjection under his feet. He's talking about the end of the age and the specific particular meal he's talking about is the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said, that's when I'm gonna have my next drink and I can't wait. It's gonna be good. But between now and then, you partake as sort of a little snack to tide you over. That's what we're doing every single week. To tide us over as kingdom citizens until the end of the age till we're with the high king of heaven incarnate in the flesh again till we're with our king every bite every week is closer to his coming think about that every bite every week is one bite closer to his coming where the high places are leveled ultimately finally absolutely forevermore where all the enemy outposts are vanquished and all the rulers and principalities are made fools of and cast into eternal darkness. Man, this is our snack that tides us over. You know it's more than that, but think of it that way till the kingdom is consummated. Let's pass out our elements and then we'll take and eat. It's kind of cool that he lets us, in fact, encourages us to participate in something that he's waiting for, that he doesn't even participate in. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm on the wagon till I come back. I mean, that, realize what he said there. I'm not going to touch it till I come back and I have it with you. Between now and then, though, you take and eat and drink and enjoy me. And you'll be with your king in, in time. Man, let's enjoy that together. Let's take and eat. Take and drink.